1: Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, Making the Game More
0: Fun, Edel Golf, Hit It, Flip It, Dial It In, and the McLemore Club Experience, Live Above the Clouds. Now, here's your
1: host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. Tonight, I've got a great foursome of guests that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. I've got one of the great all-time instructors of the game. I've got a player who, after Ben Hogan, might have the most sought-after swing in the history of the game. I've got a Champions Tour player who is a University of Texas Hall of Famer and one of the all-time great legends of the game, both on the course and behind the mic, will be with me as well. We'll talk about who those guys are in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to thank all of you for keeping the show inside the top five of the Podcast Magazine Hot 50 list in the month of August. Your support has just been tremendous. Next on the tee is currently ranked number three in the Hot 50, our football show Thursday Night Tailgate, right behind it at number four. Our goal, obviously, is to leapfrog both shows into the top spots, so please continue to vote, and you can do so daily by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. We are so close. Your votes are going to make the difference. I can't thank you enough for taking a moment out of your day to support both shows. It means a great deal to me. Okay, on to tonight's show. First up is going to be our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. Tonight, TP and I are going to get deep into the tour championship and the gaggle of additional players who have announced that they're headed over to Live Golf Now. We are headed into a very uncertain offseason, so looking forward to having T.P. back with me and talking through all of that. He'll join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from former tour player Tom Pertzer. And like I said, after Ben Hogan, Tom Swing may be the most sought after in tour history. We're going to talk about that. We'll get his thoughts on live golf. And if Greg Norman had come to him back in the 80s with a seven or eight figure check to join a live tour, what would Tom have done? Plus, we'll go back into his playing career and talk about the final group that he was in with Jack Nicklaus at the 1977 Tournament of Champions. He'll be with me about 25 minutes from now. Following him, I'll be joined by Champions Tour pro Bob Estes. Bob played his college golf at the University of Texas, and was inducted into their Hall of Honor, so a great player in Texas history for sure. We'll also talk about his season on the Champions Tour and their march to the Charles Schwab Cup. Get his thoughts on Liv as well. Plus, what makes Bob one of the best putters out there on the Champions Tour? Get a playing lesson for you. He'll join me a little bit later on in the hour. Then we're going to round out tonight's show with a visit from Bruce Devlin. Bruce is one of the all-time great players on the PGA Tour. Won eight times from 1964 to 1972. We'll talk about some of those great wins. Plus, he did a great job as a broadcaster as well for NBC and ESPN. He's got his own podcast now. So a lot to get into with Bruce. He'll join me about an hour from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you again about our friends over at the McLemore. As you guys know, my buddies and I were there again this year for our annual golf trip. Even better the second time around. Everything about what they have up there is first class. The accommodations are great. The practice facility is outstanding. Got even better when they opened up their new Himalayas putting course. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig is Outstanding Food and Service. And to say the course is spectacular is just an understatement. Can't say enough great things about it, folks. Go online to com to see how spectacular it is for yourself. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. And our friend and PGA Tour caddy and one of my guests a couple of months ago, Kip Henley, said outside of Pebble Beach, It's the most beautiful 18th hole ever seen. Golf Digest agreed naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000, and Lynx Magazine doubled down on that, naming it one of the top 10 finishing holes in all of golf. See why we're all saying such great things about the place by going online to themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade. Golf is an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why TaylorMade made their all-new Stealth Irons. TaylorMade Stealth Irons feature a cat-back design with a 3D toe wrap designed to help deliver increased distance through the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional, you know what, maybe not so occasional, less-than-perfect shots. The result, though, is better shots more often, so you get to have more fun more often. So if you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, try the all-new Stealth Irons from TaylorMade Beyond Driven. Okay, on to my first guest, who is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. If you want to take your game to the next level this year, folks, go see Tom at Farmington Country Club up in Charlottesville, Virginia. If you're in that Virginia, West Virginia or D.C. area, take that short drive and go meet him there. If you can't meet him in person, download the V1 video app and send Tom videos of your golf swing. He can help get you dialed in right there through the app. Please check out his website, tompatry.com. Give him a follow on Twitter and Instagram at TomPatryGolf. And don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel where you can watch over 300 free video playing lessons. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board, and it always does my heart good to have him here with me on Next on the Tee. Hey, T.P., how are you, my friend? Hey, T.P., how are you, my friend? Christine boy! <laughs>
0: Oh,
2: Patrick, how are you? Turn off Law and Order and and and, and to come on the show tonight. I couldn't see the end of the show, and then I heard your introduction. Perster, Estes, and Devlin and Patrick Ferrari, 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 Petzold. <laughs> it's just a, it's, not, it's not, it's not right.
1: I'm telling you, every great lineup has to have a leadoff hitter. You're my guy. You kidding me? You're my Pete yeah, Rose. But, but, but just, base Let's you get this thing going.
2: You got three guys hitting four hundred, and got guy hitting one ninety nine.
0: <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think
2: you're,
1: I think you are a solid three hundred hitter.
2: Oh Jesus! You are doing you're a delusion. Let's go on to the next thing. Come on, seriously. <laughs> all
1: right, Tom. Since last we spoke, a whole slew of guys have jumped ship and headed over to Live Golf. I mean, we all knew. The campsmith was going to do. He's going to take the Claire jug and and away he would go. So that happened. Joaquin Neiman, Harold the III, Cameron Tringali, Mark Leishman, uh, Aaron Ben Lahari, and Bern Weisberger. Those guys all go now. So your your take? Where? I mean, are we going to see more of this happen? Are we going to once we get past? whether we got the Presidents Cup left in this in this tour season. After that, is, is it going to keep happening? What are your thoughts?
2: We should give them a, Every time somebody wants to go, we should give them a, a going away party. Give them a party. <laughs> you know, fire up the cake, you know, cake and the ice cream, and yeah, oh, the whole thing, balloons, the whole thing. And then, you know, have a clown, do the whole thing. You know, <laughs> well, you don't really need a clown because you, you don't really, you don't really need a clown because you have Greg Norm, so you don't really need a clown.
0: You know? So, <laughs> <laughs> just bring Greg. But I mean, seriously, I mean,
1: this is this is a, a steady stream. Is it going to stop?
2: You no, know, you know why it's not going to stop, Greg. No, Chris, because Greg Norman and the Liv Floor and the Saudis have this endless resource called money. And, and I guess what we found out in the past couple of months is that money is more important than legacy to this generation, which is a sad statement in itself, but it seems to be the propensity of why these guys make the decision. And, and as long as the Saudis have a bottomless pit and they want to keep this, this, you know, the show alive, they're going to attract a certain amount of guys to go do that. Um, so it's, no, it's not going to go away, but I go back to what I always said to you in discussion, you know, who's watching it? I don't even know where to tune in. You know, who cares? And, and other than, I, I guess other than Dustin Johnson, I can't think of anybody that's gone that I really would turn the TV on to watch anyway. So, you know, no Cam Smith have a nice trip, guys. Well Cam, <laughs> Cam Smith I obviously hurt because I uh, you know, me with short game, short game, short games. Cam I, can't, I yes. enjoyed watching Cam Smith, obviously, right? How does a yeah. guy at that at that point in his career, having won the tournament players championship, having won player job, really starting to entrench himself in golf history and still plenty young enough to do do more damage and create a really Incredible legacy for himself going forward. He's now made himself basically to the general public invisible. Really, I mean, he's gone from being in spotlight to being invisible. Who's gonna? In, who's gonna? Are you? Are you tuning in to watch it?
1: No, but I mean, and, and but let me, here, here's let my, my. Let, here, let,
2: here, let, here, let me let me, here, let me ask you this one question: When they, when they, right. when they did the shotgun start, and he's in group three B. <laughs> <laughs> Are we watching
1: that? Are, are we watching 3D? <laughs> it's musty TV. Come on. Are you kidding me?
0: Oh
2: my no, but God, here.
1: But hear me out on this, right? Let's play Go devil's advocate. Ad- Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. You're Cam Smith. You're 29 years old. You just won both of those big tournaments. <laughs> right? You are exempt currently. You're exempt to play the open championship until you're 60 years old. And you've got an exemption to play in the other majors for the next five years. Greg Norman just stroked me a check for, I don't know, what, I don't know that we've heard 100 million, 150 million, whatever it was. And I can play in the tournaments that matter for at least the next five years. And like I say, the open championship forever. And I'm 29 and chances are I may just win another one of those major championships to reset. You know, the five year cycle again, you know, we'll we start it over and now I got another five years. Why wouldn't I go?
2: So, you're, you're, you're just in the only tournaments that matter as the US Open, the British, the Masters, and the PGA, correct?
1: We'll throw in the players, the Memorial, and Jay Hill, but essentially correct. So, let's be honest. Who's gonna remember who won the Rocket Mortgage Classic five years from now?
2: No, but no, I I, I, I get what you're saying. But let me ask you a question. So it goes back to what I think one of the real things that struck me in this whole conversation the last couple of weeks was what Tiger said. What is their incentive practice? Do they work as hard going forward preparing for live event and playing in live event as they were preparing to play in
0: any event on the PGA Tour?
2: Okay. Are they really working countless hours they work because they're playing against fields that were so deep and so strong that they knew they had to be at the ultimate test every week? And does the guaranteed money, and we don't know the answer yet, does the guaranteed money have them sitting on their ass or taking time off or taking days off or taking reps off? And are they as sharp a year from now as they were in their prime on the PGA tour? We don't know the answer yet, but we've seen money being thrown at guys in the National Football League and the NBA and Major League Baseball <laughs> caused them to sit on their ass a bit, will, will it be a similar situation here?
0: Right.
1: I don't know, Tom. I think you said it right tonight and a few other times that you've been on the show. I don't think legacy means all that much to this generation of players. Not as much as the money does. And this is generational money now. This isn't just, I'm going to do Okay. This is generational kind of money that we're talking about here. On a low end, these guys are going to make what, 125 uh, a week if they, you know, just show up to play the tournament, on top of which on again, on a low end, what are they signing these guys to? 25 million, 50 million, 75, right? So we're talking about that generational money. And if I can still play in the majors until the PGA of America, until the RNA, until Augusta National, and until the USGA comes out and say, "You guys are no longer qualified to play in any of our events." So if I can earn my way on there, I already have. I'm Dustin Johnson, I'm Cam Smith. I'm Brooks Kepka. I can still play those and potentially reset the clock by winning another one." I mean, I don't think this generation cares about, "Hey, I won the fairly ridiculous open in the oh, by the way, Invitational. They care about winning majors and making money. And I think that's just where the game is right now. And I don't even think the majority of the players on the PGA Tour care about those events as well. I mean, Brooks Kepka is, is case in point. He didn't care about winning anything that wasn't a major. And I think that's why the PGA Tour forces players in the past to play in 15 events. Now it's up to 20. Because if they didn't make them play in a minimum amount of tournaments, they wouldn't. And I think that's been that way for a long time. And it's certainly prevalent now. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And I'm not sure that that's going to change anytime soon. I don't
2: think there's any doubt in my mind anymore, Chris, after what I've seen the last three months, that this generation, and it's a sad, I mean, it saddens me. I totally mean it saddens
0: me. This
2: generation puts money ahead of titles. I mean, you know, Scotty Shepard said something like, he said something about money this week at the pro championship and said, you know, I, I play golf to win golf terms the money's a byproduct you know i can remember playing professional golf for eight years and i never really once looked at the break the purse breakdown before i started playing the tournament i never looked at the first breakdown i didn't really know how much you were playing for i was trying to win a golf tournament you know and i was always trying to tr- finish as high as i could and, and beat as many players as i could that week and obviously that's not the case i mean that's not, not not the case here at all. They, they've proven that to us that's not the case. So that's a, I think that's an extremely sad
1: statement for the sport. Tom, here's something that struck me over the weekend. And with the Tour Championship being here in Atlanta, I went out to the tournament. And on Friday is when it was essentially confirmed that Cam Smith was going over to Live Golf. We knew it going in, but that's when we heard it for sure. So I made sure that I went to the first tee on Saturday when Cam was going to be introduced and about to tee off. I wanted to be there for his tee time. I expected to hear, at a minimum, a smattering of boos. But instead, when they announced his name, the crowd went crazy. And then I followed him for several holes. And when he would make a birdie, people erupted in cheering and clapping for him and all that sort of stuff. And what stuck with me is, I don't think the fans care about these guys going over to live or not. Are you surprised that there wasn't any outrage about Cam and him leaving and that the fans didn't boo him at least a little bit for leaving and going over to live? Instead, the opposite seemed to be true. They cheered him for doing it.
2: I think with the golf IQ, the American public, unfortunately, has proven that the golf IQ across the board is not as high as you might hope it would be. Um, and I think, I think this, I think golf is a microcosm of the society. And I think the society puts money ahead of a lot of things. I think if you look at the divorce rate in this country, look, look at, you know, the division in this country right now, look, look at how people, uh, use racist spurs in this country. I think we're in a bad place. I think golf is the microcosm of that. And it's a sad statement. And I'm going to get a lot of pushback and a lot of tweets and, and yells on that one. And people will. Obviously take shots at me, but, um, you know, I'm a loyalist, Chris, you know, that If think you've learned anything about me, you've probably learned that in the last couple of years. And I have a strong ethical and moral compass. And, and I think, I think that where we are as a, as a, as a nation and as, a, as an individual group of people is not in a good place. And I think we're just seeing that across the board.
1: Tom, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about something that's a little more positive about all of this stuff. And something that we've talked about the last several times you've come on the show, we've championed a bit, is that now a part of the changes are the non-exempt players are going to get $5,000 if they don't make the cut. they help offset expenses. So of all of these changes, at least that sounds like something really good that's about to happen for those guys.
2: I, I think that I think you're right. say first, I it, it came across as kind of a strange thing to me because it's always been, you know, play or go home. You know, my, my generation was, you know, you play or you go home, and you, you miss a cut, and you know, tough luck, man, move on. It's, it's a it's a, it was a doggy dog. You know, you kind of learn certain things, and if poor core can afford to do that for the 9 exempt player, um, and by the way, I'm not sure if five thousand a week is enough. If, if, if you're doing that to help them the further action since that week. I'm not sure if that's enough in today's day and age. Uh I'd have to look at that hard and really break that down. Um, I remember, you know, I played a long time ago when I was playing, um you know, it was probably three a week back then, you know, and that's, that's a million years ago. So I'm not sure if five is the right number, but it's something, right? So, yeah, I, I, I like that change. I think that's a good change.
1: So I'm getting back to the tour championship, and how big of a win—not just for Rory McIlroy, but for the PGA Tour—was it that Rory won it? I think I think that was a
2: setup because I think that was a, you know like you know Miracle on 34th Street. <laughs> it almost seems too perfect, doesn't it? It almost seems like you know it's really like, does. To lay down. We'll we'll send you six million in, in the mail the table just to lay down so Rory wins. No, I'm and all kidding aside. Was it good? It was great. It was obviously. The right guy at the right time and nothing against Scottie Shepard. I think Scottie Shepard is a incredible talent, uh, an, an incredible ambassador for the PGA tour and, and just the kind of person you really want to root for. He says all the right things at the right times almost, uh, but I, but I love her mouth. And I love the thing about hasn't bought a new car, still driving around the same SUV, but Rory Rory winning in Atlanta was a big deal. It was at the, you know, right person at the right time? Um, It was huge. It was huge. It was huge wins for the tour, you know, to kind of shut some people up, I guess.
1: And speaking of ambassadors for the game, how great was it after Rory won it? He walks behind the 18th green, goes over to Scotty Scheffler's father, gives him a hug, says, I'm sorry, and then hugs his mom and, and all of that. How great was that to see Rory as what is now the guy who is the face of the PGA Tour? Win like that, be humble like that, and go over and and greet Scotty's parents.
2: Yeah, I think that you know, I think that makes me think just how, again, how sad. I, I used that word too many times tonight, but there were a lot of relationships out there that were great relationships that are broken now because of where guys have gone and what they've said and, and the sides they've taken. You know, I mean, with the exception of a few guys you know weren't particularly well liked. You know, so Hal and Varner was very well liked. I mean, very, very well liked out there. And, you know, he made a statement about the money really would change his life and change things he's able to do for his foundation. And I almost had to kinda of take a step back and listen to that one. And the first time somebody admitted for the first time they went strictly for the money. Um and, and these are my reasons why. Um but there's a lot of relationships that have been fractured terribly and there's a lot of guys that have very ill feelings towards each other now that you know, it, it, again, it's a sad commentary for the game. You know, but Rory's class act, obviously, and what he did in addressing Scotty's family there was was very classy. Um You know, that's what golf's supposed to be. You know, you know, you work your ass off for days, you, you play hard against each other, but you know, if somebody beats you, you tip you tip the cap and say, hey, well done, got me. you know, and let's go on to next week.
1: We have the President's Cup coming up in a couple of weeks, and that event really has never had the juice that the Ryder Cup has. But how great of an event would it be if we had uh, next year, a few years from now, the PGA Tour players versus the Live Tour players? Talk about juice. That would be fun.
2: We we, we probably need, uh, probably need some bodyguards, WWF staff, and, uh, And, and no, and no, and no sharp objects allowed. Um, yeah, how about you? Yeah, we, we can play Patrick Reed against Rory McElroy in the first match. We might have to separate them on the third green. Um, yeah, it, uh, it, you know, it's talking about a made TV spectacle that everybody would tune into. And, and certainly, um, I would hope that if that ever happened, which I, I doubt it would, but if that ever happened, that, both sides, especially the American side, would really take it extremely seriously and not be yucking it up or, or, or you know, high-fiving anybody or, you know, giving them a, you know, I would want that to be a doggy dog, but, uh, that would certainly <laughs> drive some TV ratings, wouldn't it?
1: <laughs> Indeed. You who live you, guys Chris, come out in all who, black. <laughs>
2: who are you, who are you too caffeine? Who are, are you too for that, Chris?
1: Well, I would think Greg Norman would have to be the guy for the Live Tour, and I'm not really sure who would be a good captain to be on the PGA Tour side outside of obviously Tiger.
2: I, I think I think after some of the comments Freddie made, he'd be great. You know?
0: Um, yeah, there you go. You could
2: have you could have, you could have Greg Norman come out dressed as Darth Vader, and, and Freddie could be Luke Skywalker.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome.
1: T.P., I want to get a playing lesson from you before I let you go. One of those 300 great free lessons that you've added to your YouTube channel, and the one I want to talk about tonight is tension in our golf swings, which can destroy motion. And at a time when we're all looking to get more club head speed and swing out of our shoes, talk about how gripping the club harder and tension in our bodies will actually result in the opposite happening.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, when people make things changes, Chris, during a lesson, you know, the recreational player, they change their grip or you, you know, you change something in their back swing or they get hyper focused on one area of their golf swing. You know, the normal propensity is to get, get a little tense without even realizing. And I don't just address grip pressure, but I mean, your upper extremities, all parts of your upper extremities, your wrists, your hands, your elbows, your, 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 your shoulders, your, your neck, uh, your upper back. People seem they look like they're almost robotic and they, they look like they're, like the a tin man. And obviously, that's going to really impede range of motion, uh, a free-flowing golf swing. As beautiful, for example, as Tom Purser, um, who swung with beautiful freedom in his golf swing. Um, Freddie, DJ,
0: Ernie L, uh, Don January, you know, Gene Littler, Julius Boros. Those are all swings that people should emulate as far as
2: freedom of motion. Uh, and with that vehicle we call YouTube nowadays, you can go back and watch these guys playing a golf club. But I'm I'm a big visual guy, and I I like to put things up on the screen for people and show them examples. Not that they have to swing like a tour player or be robotic or try to be somebody, but just the overall premise of freedom in the golf swing is sure going to make their life a lot easier.
1: Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you, whether it's on your website, on social media, or on your YouTube channel.
2: First of all, all the, all the typical places, the website is just Tompatry.com and everything you need to know about what I'm doing, where I'm
0: going and when I'm going to be there
2: is there as well as, you know, some bio and background, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. They're all platforms that I'm a part of. Um, but out of all those places, my favorite place for people to go to you know what's going on is right here with you every other week. It's, uh, how many shows is this now for us? Is it shows shows, Chris?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's about right. I think that's close. I think really the number is 66 tonight, but it, it, it feels like that's the right number.
2: It's unbelievable. But, I mean, this is the most fun I have every other week coming on with you. you the things you do for us and the people you bring on. Look at this lineup tonight. Percher, Estes, and Bruce Devlin. Bruce Devlin is, is an icon in, in, in world golf. I mean, he's just one of the great players of all time. Bob Estes puts the ball like well he, you know he's got to be in the top maybe be in the top five of all time with with flat six so he's certainly going to provide your viewers with some insights tonight and and Tom Percher I mean I don't know who's playing the golf ball more beautifully in our generation uh you know he's right up there with a Freddie or with a with an Ernie uh that kind of motion just just absolutely gorgeous and the guy I always love to watch so you bring these people to us every week and uh and for that, we sure will be really grateful, man. That's why We should tune in to hear you all the time.
1: I appreciate you saying that very much, Tom. It means a great deal to me, my friend. Stay safe out there. All the best to you and, uh, and the missus, and I look forward to catching up with you again in a couple of weeks.
2: Thanks, Chris. Tell Perch I said hi.
1: I will absolutely do it. That is the great Tom Patry, folks. P-A-T-R-I is a spelling of his last name. TomPatry.com is the website. Tom Patry Golf on instagram and twitter and look him up on youtube folks got to subscribe to that channel why wouldn't you 300 playing lessons for free from one of the top instructors in the history of the game doesn't get any better than that folks and his lessons are outstanding stuff that you can take to the practice tee with you practice range remember short game short game short game tom's got it all right there for you you just take your phone with you Watch it and then repeat what he does and your game is going to get infinitely better. And he's just an outstanding human being and one of my favorite people on the planet. And I look forward to catching up with Tom again in a couple of weeks. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Tom Percher, I want to remind you about a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Adele Golf. Is your driver adjustable? Of course it is. How about your irons? Didn't think so. Adele's new SMS irons give you adjustability in an iron to match your swing. These new irons come with three weights lined up across the back of the club. By moving the heavyweight to the heel, center, or toe location, you can match the club to your swing instead of vice versa. The result? Total control of the club face for more distance and accuracy. Your irons can't do this. Check them out online by going to Adelegolf.com. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is PGA Tour legend Tom Perzer. Tom's become a wonderful friend of the show over the last couple of years. Let me remind you about his background. He's from Des Moines, Iowa, played his college golf at Arizona State from 1970 to 73, and turned pro later that year in 73. Got his first PGA Tour victory at the 1977 Glen Campbell Los Angeles Open by one stroke over Lanny Watkins. Tom won five times on the PGA Tour and four more times out on the Champions Tour. In all, he has 15 professional wins. And as most of you all know, Tom has always been known as having one of the sweetest swings in the history of the PGA Tour, and it's a huge thrill to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Tom, thanks for coming back on the show. Great, Chris. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, thank you. And hey, Tom Patry passes along his hello.
0: You know, TP is worth the price of admission. <clears throat> I love listening to your shows, <laughs> especially, especially TP's. You know, he's so. Spot on just about everything he says. And, uh, it's just fun to, fun to listen to you guys banter back and forth. And he's got great knowledge. That's for sure. Yes, he does.
1: Tom, it's been about six months since we got to have you as part of the show. What's been going on with you so far this summer?
0: Um, not much. I did a little, went up to Steamboat Springs to a little, uh, golf school with my brother. He's teaching up there, uh, this summer. You, you, you gotta get out of Phoenix in the summer, like so bad. <laughs> one, one ten today, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's brutal, but um just, and um <laughs> I, I've kind of ventured off of the golf thing. I'm, I'm taking a real estate school, so got a couple buddies that have talked to me about doing that, so, you know, that's, I'm, I'm old enough now to where I'm, I'm I'm finally figuring out that uh, my my best golf days are behind me, even though I still go hit balls a lot, you know, trying to always get better. But, you know, the age thing kind of taking
1: a toll. Tom, you mentioned your brother, Paul, and I want to go back to when you guys were kids because you guys both played baseball, basketball and football. Your father was a good golfer. I read that he was a two or three handicap. So how did you guys end up playing golf over the other sports? Was it through the influence of your father?
0: Yeah, that had a big part of it for sure. Um he was he was a great man, uh very principled and stuff and um I just for me I, I love baseball. I probably but at that time I liked baseball better than I liked golf. But um it came to me when I uh after little league i i i skipped a couple of leagues so i'm now i'm i was like i don't know 12 or 13 playing with kids that are 15 and 16 and you know didn't get to play as much as i felt like i should have and all that stuff and um you know it just became to be i I wanted to be my own manager uh i i just i didn't want to have to take Orders from somebody else. I could go out and play golf and be by myself and work hard and, and, and see, you know, fruits of labor where, you know, playing right field wasn't exactly, I mean, not to say anything against right fielders, but, um, you know, that, that just wasn't what I played baseball for. So it, you know, it got to be where I just decided, you know, I like to be my own boss. And from that point on, it w- it worked out great.
1: Tom, fast-forwarding several years, you won the Arizona State Amateur in 1972. Talk about what it was like winning the biggest amateur event in your home state.
0: Well, you know, that's kind of always huge. It's like winning the, you know, the, like the Phoenix Open. I lived here and all that stuff. And for me back then, because my brother was older than I was, and he played, he was a great player. Um, what, you know, his amateur career was really good. And, you know, there was a bunch of guys that I looked up to, uh, in the state of Arizona, Dr. Ed Uptegraff and, uh, Howard Quiddy and my brother and Joe Porter, a bunch of guys that, you know, that I kind of looked up to at that point in time. And I, I'll never forget it was at Paradise Valley Country Club, which is an awesome, a great little golf course. And I was, I I was behind in so many matches until the finals that it was I had it was a grind. Um you know it's just one of those deals where you, you you know in your career it's one of the things that you'd like to have in your in your repertoire of, of tournaments that you've won. You know I I never played in the Arizona Open until I was I think it was the first time I played was 65 or something. Um, I kind of felt like that was not really meant for tour players, but um, now I regret not having the Arizona Open as as a you know one of the one of my wins. But um, you know, anytime you're playing around your 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 home in your home state and where your parents can watch, friends can watch it, it's a big
1: deal. Tom, you mentioned the word grind, and you had to go through Q school a few times. How did trying to get through Q school compare to playing out on tour, both in nerves and difficulty to try to make it all the way through?
0: Yeah, the tour school as, as what I think Max been through it what, 17 times or something. But you know, that's the grind of all grind, you know, that you've got one week and if you don't play good that week, you're, you're off for a whole year. I mean, obviously now there's a lot more opportunities for young players to play but back then it was you either win i mean you either get one of the spots or you're done for the year and if my school back then we had two schools and i missed the first school i ever tried and then uh played in far east tour and then came home and and um got into the made it through the next tour school so It's a, it's just a, it's something that nobody really wants to go through. But, um, I mean, there were 13 cards the year that, that I got through and man, if you're not one of those 13, you're, you're out of luck for a whole year. So it's just, it's, it's a grind. I remember I, I had a, I went to a, a class at my friend he, He came to be one of my best friends. Uh, Ed Grant had this thing called um, subconscious golf. It was it was really about self talk, you know, and what you say to yourself on the golf course, (laughs) and and pretty much pretty much all golfers can relate to you know self talk and whether it's going to help you or hurt you. And that before then, before I went to that class, it was always hurting. You know, I was. I was always giving myself grief about shots that I hit and stuff, but after that, um, I set some goals, and I think I finished second in the school um and i you know I attribute it to entirely to that class that I took on subconscious golf um so that was a big, big change for me, and it you know it was always. For me, it was always a struggle trying to keep myself talking Check. Jack.
1: Let's fast forward a few years to 1977, and you went into the final round of the Tournament of Champions tied with Jack Nicholas. What was it like going head-to-head with Jack in the final round of that tournament?
0: <laughs> well, Chris, do you think I was a little bit nervous? You know, playing with the greatest. <laughs> and, you know, and I had played with him... Um, I think I'd played with him at Hilton Head. And I can't remember if that was before or after, but he, you know, he couldn't have been nicer. I mean, he was class guy, you know, not much, not much talk, but, um, you know, if I hit a good shot, it was good shot. And, you know, just, I was kind of mesmerized just being, you know, thinking to myself, good grief, I'm playing with the greatest player of all time. Um, you know so that that was that was a little distracting, but um you know he was always 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 nice to me, and um you know I think i shot might have shot one over two over the last day, and he shot the, i think he shot i don't know three or four under, so I ended up losing by i think I lost by two or three um so I had my, you know, I had my chances. I remember coming down the last few holes and and making a couple of bogeys that that hurt. But um, you know, it was just a, it it, it was just such an experience to be able to play with him. Uh, and you know, and I I feel, you know, I got to say something about Mr. Weiskopf. Um I I mourned his passing past uh week or two weeks whatever but you know tom was one of the you know he was he was i don't know what the word is but um he was so nice to me even when i first came out on tour but which is a little unusual Uh, a lot of the guys weren't um endearing to the to the You know, the new guys coming out on tour, but Tom was always, always nice to me. And I think it had some, I think he, I think he had respect for, you know, the way I swung the club. He was a big, um, he he loved, he loved tradition, history. And, um, I remember playing before I even got on tour, I must have been like in college, I had a chance to play at Paradise Valley Country Club with he and jc snead and ed snead and um you know i just remember the thing that stuck out he was so um so nice and so encouraging to me uh that you know i'll never forget that you know one of the darkest moments i had on the golf course was i i got paired with him at uh, augusta first round and i he i was part of the 13 on the 12th hole. Um, you know, that that sticks out to me as one of the really dark moments of, you know, cuz he was always in the, in contention at Augusta every year. And to think that, you know, that wasn't going to happen now that just because of that one hole. Um, so, you know, I have a lot of great memories about Tom, but to go back to Jack, I mean, you know, um, he just, he just couldn't have been nicer and, and, uh, and, you know, it's fun to watch him win always.
1: Tom, I want to get your thoughts on what we're seeing going on right now in the game of golf between the PGA tour and live golf. This is the biggest disruption in the game in my lifetime. What are your thoughts about what you're seeing right now?
0: Mine too, Chris. I, I, um. You know, it's just, it's not good for professional golf. I don't think it's good for, and you know, they keep saying, oh, we're trying to grow the game, uh, you know, more free time away from golf at home with family and stuff. You know, that's all hogwash. It's just, it's a money grab. It's an exhibition tour and a money grab. Tom, GP had it right. Everything he said about, you know, you, you find out who plays for championships. And who plays for money? You know, all these kids, I feel bad for all these kids, you know, and I blame it on their leader, um, who, you know, the tour is never going to negotiate with him. Uh, you know, he's tried to do this before he tried to in the early nineties, he wanted to take, you know, 30 of the best players on the PGA tour and start this, start another league. Um, and, you know, the, all the players shut him down. Um, and it was, you know, it was obviously not as big a deal than it is now, but you know, now he's just got all this money to throw at these young kids. I just feel bad for these young kids because you can't really say, you can't really, you know, say that the kids are, are doing something wrong. I mean, if somebody throws that much money in your face and go, Hey, come on over here and play eight times a year for this amount of money or 14 years, 14 times next year. And, you know, I guarantee you, he's telling everybody, Hey, you'll be able to play in PGA tour events. And, you know, that they can't, they can't kick you off of the tour and this and that. I guarantee you that's what he told them. And, um, you know, I was kind of glad to see, uh, you know, and I don't know whether glad to see is the right word, but when those kids didn't get to play in the, you know, down the stretch here in the Schwab I mean in the not the Schwab Cup, but the FedEx Cup. Um you know, so I, I just I blame everything on him. Um and it's just unfortunate that their these kids are being tempted by this huge amount of money. I you know this thing today, all these great players that are supposed to sign up for live, I don't see it. Um obviously Cam You know what? Somebody's going to take Cam's place. Um, really, did anybody, has anybody ever heard of Cam Smith, um, three or four years ago? I I don't think so. Right. You know, I, um, there's going to be somebody that's going to come in there and and fill his shoes. I was so happy to see Hideki not, you know, and 400 million. That's the word that, that's the number that I heard. 400 million. How do you? that really shows his, you know, his, his want for a legacy. Uh, and I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that he, that he didn't uh take the money, but, you know, it just shows that there are some, some, some guys with some, with some, I don't know what you, I don't want to say, but, you know, to me, you know, there's only one guy that I really, Enjoyed watching that play and live, and that's Louie, you know I watched I yeah. love watching him swing the club um and you know so that's that's a little disheartening to see that he went, but again, it's all about the money and i I wish that just one guy I saw where Cam today said it was about the money. I just wish one of these guys would say, "You know, I did it for the, money, and that and we all know that that if there wasn't money involved, a million, a hundred millions of dollars, would anybody be playing live? No. No, absolutely not. They'd be playing PGA Tour. So, it, you know, to finish what you said, and TP said it the best, um, you know, it's whether you play for championships or whether you play for money. And in this day and age, you know, and I, I get on Facebook and I read, you know, these some of these guys that um, you know talk about, oh well, you know, you would have done it for the money, and um I don't know. I can't. I tell you that I wouldn't have, but I would have liked to think that I wouldn't have. I would have liked to thought that, hey, I'm. I play. I, I want to win tournament. I want to win PGA. I grew up. I grew up, um, you know, thinking in the back of my mind, I want to play the PGA tour. You know, of course, Lib was not around there, but. Round that back then, but you know, that, that was my focus. My focus was, and I guarantee you that's what all these young kids coming out of college, you know, that's what they want to do too. Um, but now with the money grab, it, it it's changed and it's changed, I think professional golf forever. Um, you know, the, there's so many, you know, like TP said, you know, this shotgun start my, my club championship. Here in, in Scottsdale, they send everybody off the first tee. And, you know, I, right? I, 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 oh yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. Well, I mean, you know, like championship flight, if you're in, if you're, if you're in the championship flight for the club championship Air, everybody goes off the first tee. It's not a, it's not a shotgun start. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, the, the guys that left today, Uh, I'm, little disappointed Harold Harold Warner. I thought I know Michael I think Michael Jordan told him, you know, hey, don't take don't go for the money. Kids, you know that you're gonna get a hundred million or ten million or whatever it is to play in, you know, a few golf tournaments. And I still think that though all these players are being told That hey, we're going to win this suit against the PGA tour and you'll be back playing the PGA tour. So, you know, I don't know. There's so many, you know, and I haven't seen any, I haven't seen anything on drug testing. Are they going to drug test live or, or what? So, Hmm. I don't know. It is, it's frustrating because uh, of the money. You know, there's just so much money being thrown at these young kids. I just feel bad for them. Well, I feel bad. I feel good for them because they're going to, They're getting all this money, but at the same time, they're going to miss out on playing for, you know, championships. That that means something.
1: Tom, on this same topic, and you say that you would like to think that you wouldn't have gone, but if other players had gone, and this had happened in the 80s and the 90s when you're playing out on tour, but they had the opportunity to come back and play on the PGA Tour sometimes. Maybe it's just in the majors. You see a guy that you kind of were acquainted with, Left the PGA Tour, took all the money, and went over to live. And now you're paired with that person in a U.S. Open or a PGA Championship. What would that have been like for you? Would you have been welcoming him back, and you know everything is just as it would have been otherwise, or would that have been a difficult thing for you to to deal with?
0: Well, it would be. There's such a divide in professional golf right now. That's the thing. That's the thing that really irks me the most. I mean, you know, up until this live thing. I thought that the PJ Tour was in the best shape it's ever been. I still think it's in great shape. Um, but, uh, you know, there were so many good young kids that they were good guys and they played great golf. Um, and you know, you watch them and there's so much camaraderie. You know, they're when, when somebody, when one of those young kids wins, all their buddies are at the 18th green going, Hey, way to go, you know, high five and. Fist pump and stuff. Um, so that has kind of gone away a little bit, I think. Um, well, actually even, I think it's more so now, you know, non-live player versus live player. Um, you know, it's got to be, got to be disconcerting. Uh, it's, it's in the back of every player's mind now, whether you're a live guy or whether you're a PGA tour guy. I mean, that's, there, it's just a, Incredible divide. It's like TP said. It's like the world we live in. There's such a divide right now about the life, about the way our country's going, and it's it's filtered into the pj Tour. And you know, it's you know, I've, I I just I blame it on one guy. It's, you know, it's disconcerting. You know, I can't tell you if I would have gone. I, I'm. Uh, Obviously, you you know, the money is, is a, is a huge kicker. But, you know, for these guys, they're all, you know, they're all, they're not going to have to worry about money for the rest of their lives playing the tour. They've got great, uh, pension plans, you know, and and they've played for so much money. If you played good at all, you, you've got your, you've got the rest of your life made. Um, so what do you do, you know, to buy a bigger boat? Buy a fancier car. Is that what it's all about? Um, I, and just, uh, I, I, again, the thing I, the thing that gets me the most, is I just feel bad for all these young kids that are getting, you know, their opportunity to fulfill their dreams of winning PGA tour tournaments is, is kind of taking it in the shorts.
1: but Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether that's following you online or somewhere on social media?
0: Well, I'm LinkedIn, uh, uh on Facebook. Um, I don't do Twitter. Um, so that, that's about it. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to spend less time on Facebook. Seems like, seems like that's kind of taken over. But, uh, anyway, uh, Tell Bob and, and Bruce, Bruce was always such a great guy to me, too. We played a lot of rounds together um on the PGA Tour, and he was always always a great guy and fun to watch and a great player. So tell those guys I said hi, and TP, give my best to TP. And Chris, thanks for having me on the show. Uh It's the, the best golf show going.
1: Well, thank you for that, Tom. It certainly means a great deal to me, as do you. Take care, my friend. All the best to you your family. I look forward to catching up with you again real soon. Okay, Chris. Thanks. See you, Tom. That is the great Tom Pertzer. And you want to talk about just one of the great human beings on the planet. And then on top of that, a guy who had a golf swing that has been sought after and praised for many decades now. I can like I say on top of uh, Ben Hogan, it might be the most sought after golf swing in the history of the game and just a wonderful human being. I could listen to Tom tell stories all night long. I love having him as part of the show, a guy who's become very important to me over the last few years, and I certainly am looking forward to catching up with him again real soon. Before I get to my next guest, Bob Estes, I want to remind you about a couple more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Two Under. Two Under Men's Performance Briefs have just released their new Spring and Summer 22 collections with fun, new, and exciting prints like the Freedom 2 and 3, Santa Fe, Tigers, Zebras, and Duckies. And their new exclusive Folds of Honor collection, where they donate 20% of all Folds of Honor sales proceeds to that cause. The patented Joey Pouch technology delivers maximum comfort, fit, and performance while preventing any unwanted skin-on-skin contact or chafing. Good for anything from the golf course, to the boardroom, to the bedroom. You can find these two performance briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide. All Shield Sports Stores, all PGA Tour superstores, Golf Galaxy, Dillard's, and other fine retailers near you. You can also order them online at 200.com. That's the number two, UNDR.com. 200, performance in your pants. Use code NEXT20, that's N-X-T-T-E-E-20, for a 20% discount on the 200 website. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. We deal with a lot on the golf course, whether you're teeing off in front of a crowd, hitting a four iron after a rain delay, trying to figure out wind direction or second guessing club selection. It's easy for your mind to race. That's exactly what drove Golf Pride to create the all new CPX. It's made with a unique EXO diamond quilted pattern, reducing vibration in your hands on every shot. The EX diamond quilted pattern really helps your hands sink into the club on every shot giving you maximum comfort, because when your hands are comfortable, you're comfortable. CPX is available now on golfpride.com or at your local retailer. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is Champions Tour Pro Bob Estes. Let me remind you about Bob's background. He's from Graham, Texas. In 1983, Bob won the Texas State High School Championship. Played his college golf at the University of Texas from 1984 to 1988 where he was a three-time All-American and a four-time All-Southwest Conference selection. He helped the Longhorns win three tournaments in the 1986-87 season and three more times in the 87-88 season. Bob won individual medalist honors six times while at Texas. He won the 1988 Haskins Award, which is presented annually to the most outstanding collegiate golfer in the nation. That year, Bob won the Texas State Amateur as well and the Jack Nicklaus Award for being the College Player of the Year. In 1999, Bob was inducted into the University of Texas Hall of Honor. He joined the PGA Tour in 1989 and was named Rookie of the Year by Golf Magazine. He earned his first tour win at the 1994 Texas Open, going wire to wire, thanks in part to an opening round 62. Bob won four times on the PGA Tour. In addition to the Texas Open, he won the 2001 Invinces Classic in Las Vegas, the 2001 FedEx St. Jude Classic, and the 2002 Kemper Open. Over the course of his career, on top of those four wins, he has 12 runner-up finishes, nine third-place finishes, 107 top 10s, and 240 top 25s. He's now playing out on the Champions Tour, and I'm very excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Bob, thanks for coming back on the show.
4: Hey, Chris. Yeah, glad to be back.
1: Bob, I want to start by going back to when you were very young, because I read you started playing golf at the age of four, and by the time you were 12, you decided you wanted to be a pro golfer. How'd you know at such a young age?
4: Well, I'd been playing tournaments and having success from a young age, and so, you know, and watching the PGA Tour on television, um, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. I was playing all the other sports up to that point as well, but... um but I knew that, that golf is what I was going to pursue.
1: Talk about the other sports that you played. And because you were such a well-rounded athlete, do you think that helped you become such a good golfer?
2: Oh, I think it helped for sure, especially playing basketball through high school. Um, we had a,
4: a new coach. Um, my sophomore year of high school and he was really tough and he was in there to lay down the law and make sure that you know who was boss and he was was a great coach and you know and he was you know really friendly um, after practice but the practices were tough and I learned all about hard work um, playing high school basketball.
1: Let's fast forward to your college days. And like I mentioned in your intro, you were a medalist six times at the University of Texas. You were named the college player of the year. Talk about your college days at UT.
4: Well, it's where I always wanted to go. My dad went to Texas. I had a cousin who pole vaulted at Texas for a little while before he transferred. Um, We were playing the state um, high school tournament um, each year in Austin. And so I just, you know, fell in love with Austin as well as, you know, just kind of always having that um UT influence, especially from my dad like I mentioned. And so um yeah, it was a great four years. Um, you know, I, I wish we would have done better as a as a team and I still could have done better as an individual as well, but um yeah, I I, you know, when I first went there, I I was, I was hoping that we would, you know, win conference championships, NCAA championships, but uh, it didn't happen. But uh, still had a a really good golf coach, Jimmy Clayton, that got me prepared um, to play the the PGA Tour. So I'm still very thankful for him, you know, bringing me to Texas.
1: Texas has such a rich history in golf. So many great players have come through there. Guys like Ben Crenshaw, Tom Kite, Brandel Shambly, Jordan Spieth nowadays, Scotty Scheffler, another recent great player. To name just a few of all the great ones that have come through there. Talk about the great players that have come through that program.
4: It is amazing, um, you know, a lot of those players that you mentioned, of course, and there's many others, uh, you know, with Scotty Scheffler doing so well recently. And I, I'm not sure if you mentioned, you know, Jordan Spieth or not, of course, but, uh, you know, everybody's enjoying watching him play as well so yeah we've had that um tradition for a long time um there's always been really good players coming through the team hasn't always done as well you know we had hoped but um um yeah just you know more more great players the 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 cootie brothers uh you know just graduated and they both won in the last couple of months Cole Hammer, I'm sure, uh, is going to make his mark in the game as well. And then um, Travis Vick and Mason Nome, um, you know, that are still in school and have a couple years left, I believe. Um, It'll be fun to see how they progress as well.
1: You get inducted into the Longhorns Hall of Honor in 1999. What was that like for you? What was that moment like? To be able to stand up in front of your alma mater and get enshrined into their hall of honor.
4: Well, that was a long time ago, but, um, yeah, it was very special. Um, yeah, having, you know, won the, the Haskins award and the Jack Nichols award my senior year, um, and a, being a, a two time first team All American those last two years. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, I had an idea that I would get inducted at some point, but, um, yeah, it was still a, um, yeah, it was, it, it's it's something that I do, um, you know, value quite highly, You know, just like winning those awards um, that allowed me to get inducted into the Longhorn Hall of Honor. So, yeah, that, that's something I'm very proud of.
1: Bob, I'm surprised that you already aren't in the state of Texas Golf Hall of Fame because of your success there at UT, all the things that you've achieved so far in your pro career. And when I see some of your contemporaries, like, Billy Ray Brown, Chad Campbell, Steve Elkington, Jeff Maggart, and Blaine McAllister in, I have to believe it's only a matter of time before you join them. Do you expect to be there one day?
4: Well, somebody has to nominate you first. And I was nominated, um, I think, for the first time last year. But it's interesting how they do it because they have it divided up. Um, They have your, you know it. An amateur category and they have a professional category in addition to the other two, you know, including, you know, a legacy club, you know, where I'm not for sure. I just went blank on the fourth one, but anyway, they, they divide up, um, that they separate your professional career from your amateur career. And, you know, I've had a, had a solid amateur career and a pretty solid professional career. So if you combine them, um, you know, you would think that I would probably be in there. But I think it just has to do with um, what the the nominating criteria are. So um, I'm not too worried about it, but maybe someday.
1: Let's switch gears and talk about this season that you've had out on the Champions Tour. A really good one. You had a top 15 at the Color Guard Classic with a nice final round 65. A fourth place finish at the Rapsican Systems Classic with a second round 64. He had to share of the lead in the opening round in the senior PGA championship with another great round of 64. How do you feel about how things have gone so far in 22?
4: Well, I have shot some low scores, like you mentioned, and I had that one chance to win um, in Mississippi when I ended up finishing fourth. But um, Stephen Alker just um blitzed us on the, the back nine and ran off and left us. Um It's been a pretty... Rough year for the, for the most part, for different reasons. Um, you know, mainly I just haven't played well enough. I needed to, to hit it better at times. And of course, other times I need to putt better. Um, I, I did, uh, I missed, um, some tournaments for different reasons. Um, I did lose my father back in July. I was overseas at the open championship. You know, he'd been struggling for a while and I was a little bit hesitant to go. But I knew that um I might have to get on the plane and, and hustle back home, you know, at any moment. I was definitely planning on going back home to Abilene um right after I got back home from the open championship or the, the senior open at Glen Eagles. But um when I got up on Thursday morning, um I received um a text from my mom saying that my dad had taken a turn for the worse and it was it was probably time to, to come home. So I wasn't able to get on the flight that day, but I was first thing the next morning, flew back home to, to Austin, drove to Abilene the next day, and he passed away about 24 hours later. So, you know, it's been a, a rough year, mainly because of that. And then I've, I've missed a few other tournaments because of, um, you know, bad allergies and, you know, where, where the pollen was really high, um, certain places that we've gone. Uh, and maybe places where I haven't really struggled in the past, but just happened to this year. Actually, I had to withdraw from the tournament this past week. I'm the ally. I played the two weeks before, had no issues in, um, Snoqualmie up in the Seattle area. And then the next week, um, at the Dick Sporting Goods open, uh, the ragweed pollen was high, tree pollen was up, and I was, I was struggling, but I, I pushed through. But then this past week, it got even worse, and um I was doing my warm-up on Friday morning in the gym at the hotel before going to the course, which was a few minutes away, and I couldn't even finish my warm-up. So I, I got really dizzy, and I was lightheaded. I had to go back up to the room and lay down, got up a couple more times to, to move around and, and, and see if the dizziness was going to go away, and it, it didn't. And so, and it was only supposed to get worse over the next couple of days as far as uh the pollen levels and so I decided it was probably best to go ahead and let somebody else have my spot. But um yeah, I missed a few turn I, I missed the um the Regis tradition, um, which was very disappointing. You know, my game was in pretty good shape at the time. I had taken the week off four to get ready for that one. But it seems like everything was high at that time of the year in the spring in Birmingham, Alabama, and I got worse and worse every day and by um, you know Thursday morning I just I couldn't hardly stay upright so I missed um, that one as well so yeah it's been a pretty tough year and yeah I've, I've, my game is, is pretty good I like you know we talked about it. I've shot some low scores and uh, played some other really good rounds where I just didn't quite get the score but um overall it's been uh, pretty frustrating Um but you know there's still tournaments um, coming up so hopefully I'll be able to play well and you know, make it all the way to the Swab Cup Finals and Phoenix at the end.
1: Bob, one more before I let you go. And obviously the big topic around the game of golf right now is live golf. want to get your thoughts. How do you feel about what you're seeing?
4: Well, just like, you know, you've had other guests talk about, you know, it's, it's very divisive and it's changing every day and every week. It seems like, um, I did listen to, um, your interview with Ron Cross, because I just wanted to hear what he had to say about the whole situation. And yeah, it is disappointing to, to see, um, a lot of players leave the PGA tour and go to, to live when, you know, I would rather see them play on the PGA tour and, and see how they progress. And, um, we'll have to wait and see how things play out as far as, uh, you know, the official world golf ranking. Um, the, the major championships, will these players be strictly playing for money, you know, for the rest of their careers or will they somehow, some way still be able to qualify and play in major championships? Um, when Ron was talking about the, the team aspect and franchises, I didn't quite follow exactly what all he was saying there. You might have a better understanding of that than I do but I'm still not sure that that team aspect
2: each week interests people as much as individual performances. Um, so, again,
4: we'll just kind of have to wait and see how um this all plays out. Um uh, I've got a feeling that a lot of the players were maybe somewhat misled and that they were probably gonna still be able to have their cake and eat it too. Uh maybe play to live and you know, and, and still play tournaments on PGA Tour and the D P World Tour and still be able to play and qualify for the majors. Um I I guess yeah, well I'm like most everybody else. I'm just kind of watching to to see what happens and because of that um court date not taking place, if I understand all that correctly, until January of 2024, uh, I guess we're going to have to wait uh, quite a while to see what happens regarding all that.
1: Bob, I want to get a playing lesson from you before I let you go, and you're one of the best putters out on tour. You're averaging 1.589 putts per hole, which is good for fifth on the Champions Tour, and 28.6 putts per round, which is fourth on tour. What's your key to being such a great putter?
4: Well, one thing that I had to, to change at some point to, to be a more consistent putter was I had to, to go left-hand low. Um, I'm not perfectly symmetrical. And when I had Dave Pelz take a look at me many, many years ago, uh, he said, you're, you're built to putt left-hand low. And I know he's a you know pretty big proponent of that as well or at least whatever allows you to, you know, make a, a straighter back and straighter through stroke. Um, but I had to go left-hand low to improve my mechanics. You know, I, I've always had good touch, good speed control, and, you know, that also comes from hours and hours of practice, especially as we go from course to course and different kinds of grasses and things like that. But in particular... I had to, to get more consistent as far as getting the ball started on my line. So, so I use a, kind of a, a reverse, um, well, I guess it's an overlap, left hand low, and that allows me to get my shoulders, um, aligned more properly and I guess my forearms as well. But yeah, I had to, I had to get more consistent at, at getting the ball started on line to become a better putter.
1: Bob, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're out there achieving, whether it's online or it's on social media?
4: Well, um, yeah, obviously, what, what's interesting is you say that. I know you're talking more about social media, but um, what a lot of people don't realize is that every tournament rounds or every round that we play on the Champions Tour is televised, you know, either by the golf channel. And it's not always live. Sometimes it's tape-delayed. But, uh, network television for a lot of the majors, we're we're kind of beyond that now for 2022. But, um, yeah, I'm surprised that so many people don't realize that every round that we play is televised, you know, it, 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 you know, you know, that particular day, maybe not live, but it it might be, um, taped and shown later that evening. But, um, as far as social media, um, I'm not on Instagram as much as I'm on Twitter, but Instagram, Bob. A, Estes, and then Bob, P G A or S, P, G, A on Twitter.
1: Well, Bob, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of the show again tonight. I'm rooting hard for you as you guys make the run for the Charles Schwab Cup. I'm looking forward to watching you in the finals. In between now and then, stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again real soon.
2: Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. Take care, Bob.
1: That is the great Bob Estes, and I can't thank Bob enough for being generous with his time tonight, coming back and being a part of the show. Tonight was the fifth time I've had the privilege of having Bob here. I'm rooting very hard for him as he makes the run towards the Charles Schwab Cup. Hopefully, we see him in the finals here in a few weeks. And just a a great guy, and there's no question that he is going to be in the state of Texas Golf Hall of Fame at some point. He had a great college career, fantastic out on the PGA Tour knocking it out of the park on the Champions Tour. There's no question he belongs in that Hall of Fame, and I'm sure we're going to see him in there real soon. Before I get to my next guest, Bruce Devlin, I want to mention a couple more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Strixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Strixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Strixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Strixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Strixon. Check them out online at Strixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the valley of Missoula, Montana, that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation. And that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, The Speed Cart and Rainflex Rain Gear. Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing product. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Bruce Devlin. Let me give you some background on Bruce. He was born in Armandale, Australia. He won the 1959 Australian Amateur Championship. He turned pro in 1961 joined the PGA Tour in 1962, and won eight times from 1964 to 1972. He also won once out on the Champions Tour. He is one of only four players to make a double eagle at the Masters. He did so holing a forward on the par 5 eighth hole in 1967. He played in 61 majors on the PGA Tour, made the cut 51 of those times, and had 16 top 10 finishes. He had 31 professional wins in all. His last win on the PGA Tour came at the 1983 New Zealand Shell Open at 46 years of age. He was 57 when he beat Dave Eichelberger in a playoff to win the FHP Healthcare Classic on the Champions Tour. Bruce retired from competitive golf in 1998 to focus on his golf course design business. He's designed over 150 courses around the world. His courses have hosted several professional golf tournaments on all tours. Bruce is also one of the all-time great broadcasters. He worked for NBC and ESPN, and I am thrilled. He is with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hi Bruce, thanks for coming on the show.
3: Well, you're welcome, Chris. Uh, glad to be with you, sir.
1: Bruce, I want to start our time tonight by going back all the way when you were growing up in Australia. I'm curious, when did you start playing golf and who was the first person to put a golf club in your hands?
3: Well, I never had any aspirations to play golf, I can assure you of that. I grew up in a little town of about 15,000 people, and we had three Olympians hockey players. So we had a lot of uh, young teams around our little town, and we played field hockey day and night. And I mean, that's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And then, unfortunately, my dad, who... Like to play golf he was about a 20 handicap a left-hander uh he had a bad automobile accident lost his right arm and uh and then when he come home and rehab he said you know I still want to play golf and I need somebody to come play with me and I've nominated you so that's how I that's how I got into <laughs> golf I, I went with my dad when uh, when he wanted to play with one arm uh, interestingly, I said he was a 20 handicapper with two arms. He'd become a 14
0: handicapper with one arm. Quite remarkable. Wow!
1: Yes. Yeah. So, at what point in your life did you finally say, "You know what? I'm I'm pretty good at this golf thing."
3: Well, I I was uh, doing pretty good uh, <clears throat> on amateur events, and one particular weekend, I I uh, I couldn't get back to school until Monday morning, and I walked in and. Of course, the first, person I, first teacher I saw was the, was the head of the Christian Brothers School that I went to, and he said to me, Mr. Devlin, you've got two choices. You can stay here and do your studies, or you can go and play golf. I said, well, thank you, sir. I'll go play golf. So I picked up my bags and went home. And When I got home, my dad was there having morning tea with my mother, and he said, you know, what the hell are you doing home? And I said, I told him the story. He said, okay, go get your overalls on. You're going to go work as a plumber. And uh, that's what I did. I worked with him and then I went through technical college, become a master plumber and worked with him for about uh, five or six years until I did a couple of silly things. I won the New South Wales uh, amateur championship in 58. Australian amateur in 59, and then the Australian Open as an amateur in 1960. And then my uh, my good friend and coach at that time, Norman Bono, to talk my... I come home from work one day, actually, he was in my uh, kitchen with my wife, convincing her to convince me to turn pro, and that's how it all happened.
1: And like you mentioned, you win the Australian Amateur Championship in 1959 by defeating Jack Coogan, two up at Royal Sydney. 2 years earlier in 57 you finished runner up to Barry Warren talk about the close call and then coming back 2 years later and winning it all
3: Yeah well uh, Barry Warren beat me in Melbourne and uh, uh that was that was a big shock for me because I was sort of considered the favorite I guess and and he just putted the eyes out of it 36 holes I just I just couldn't uh, I couldn't get the job done I I ended up losing to him, and then, uh, then uh, fortunately at Royal Sydney, a couple of years later, I was able to win the amateur, which was very, very nice.
1: You won 19 times on the Australian New Zealand circuit. You had to be achieving like rock star status in Australia. What was life like for you as you're racking up all those wins?
3: Well, you know, back in the early days, uh, it's not like it is today. Uh, I used to. After I turned pro, and came over here in 1962 to the, to Augusta for my first tournament as a pro. I, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't go back home. Uh, I couldn't not go back home and support, you know, my tour there. And, uh, in those days, we never got paid a penny to go back. Uh, we just went back and played for the prize money. Uh, things have changed a little bit since then, obviously, but, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I always had. Enjoyed my uh my golf in my home country, but I must say that you know, that's one thing that if you want to you know, if you want to play against the best in the world you have to come over here to the United States.
1: You get your first PGA Tour victory at the St. Petersburg Open Invitational in nineteen sixty four. You win that event by four strokes over Dan Sykes. What do you remember about getting your first win out there on the PGA Tour?
3: Oh, I remember being on the practice tee on Wednesday afternoon after the Pro-Am, and I was complaining to my good friend, Jack Nicholas, whom I come over here actually in 1960 and played the amateur, stayed with him in Columbus, and we traveled together to St. Louis. But yeah, I was complaining to him Wednesday afternoon that I couldn't drive the ball, and I said, would you, you know, spend some time with me on the driving range? And, And he spent some time with me on the driving range, and I went out, and I think I ended up beating him by six shots. And he promised me that that was the last lesson I'd ever get from him. So that was the thing that (laughs) stuck in my mind more than anything else, that my good friend gave me a lesson, and I
1: walked in. (laughs) (laughs) Great. A couple of weeks later... You're at the 1964 Masters. You're in second place, five strokes behind Arnold Palmer going into the final round. What was it like being in that position, and what was it like trying to chase down Arnold Palmer?
3: Well, I I, I started the last round off pretty good. I started birdie at one, birdie at two, birdie at three, and I was not actually playing with Arnold. I was playing with Gary, Gary Player. And... uh I was three under after three, and I hit a beautiful iron shot at the uh, fourth hole, and come up just a little bit short, sort of dropped into the bunker about fifteen, twenty feet from the hole. And Gary hit it on the back left corner of the green, and then putted it eight foot by, and then putted another four foot by. And cut a long story short, he four putted before I got to play a bunker shot, and and I made a bogey. Uh, I hit a beautiful bunker. Bunker shot out about three feet and missed it. I, I don't know whether I was upset with him for what, what happened, but anyhow, I, uh, <laughs> I ended up finishing fourth that year, but, uh, you know, there for a moment, I thought I might have, might have caught the big boy, but, uh, he went on to win. What a great player.
1: A few years later in 1968, you're right back in the thick of things at the Masters. This time you work your way into a share of the lead pretty quickly in the fourth round. With Birdies at two and three, and you and Roberto Di Vincenzo are in a battle early in the round, and then Bob Golby and Bert Yancey would join that battle on the back nine. Take us inside what that final round was like.
3: Well, uh, like you said, I got off to a pretty good start there, but uh, you know, I, I guess most of the time, at Augusta in particular, if you missed the hole on the wrong side. Uh, You know your chances of making a putt are very slim, and the opportunity to three putt becomes more prevalent. But the thing I remember most about 1968 was was the Saturday. I went to the 11th hole with a three shot lead Saturday, and I hit a beautiful drive, and I hit what I thought was an absolutely perfect six iron to the green at 11 with a short flag. And I didn't quite carry it far enough and it kicked, hit on the down slope just short of the green and kicked left and it went in the water. And I made about a 25 footer for an eight, uh, which, I mean, obviously blew my lead quickly, but then I made a couple of birdies coming back in and like you said, started off pretty good Sunday, but just, uh, I guess, I, I guess that particular, uh, major was about like all of them. I just, couldn't quite get it across the finishing line
1: let's rewind one year back to 1967 and you hit one of the all-time great shots in golf. you make double eagle on the eighth hole at augusta national what do you remember about that shot
3: well i was playing with doug sanders and uh i i didn't get off to a very good start uh, i was a couple over par and then i hit my drive at, at eight in the right rough oh, well the first cut actually not in the rough and, and I had a beautiful lie, and it was the first year they changed the green, and, uh you know, the best way from from the right-hand side for me to get in that green was to hit a, you know, a fairly good-sized hook, and I did. I hit a beautiful, hard-running, four-wood that hooked about 15 yards, and my dad was with me that year, and he was up on top of the hill. uh I knew it hit a pretty good shot. And the next thing I see him jumping up and down, I thought, oh, boy, that's got to be really close. Uh And then, you know, the bush wireless got back to me in about four seconds
0: and said, no, it's not close, you hold it. <laughs> so that was pretty wow. special. Sort of you
2: mentioned
3: your relationship. Uh, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go right ahead. No, I was going to say it's interesting that... uh uh, Sarazen did it in 35 and then took another 32 years
0: before I did it. And then, uh, our friend from, uh, the Woodlands, uh, oh God, I've lost his name now. He, he did it in what, 93 so huh? and Yeah, he did it in the
3: 2002, I think at the second hole, but four double eagles all at the different par five, which is quite remarkable.
1: You mentioned your relationship with Jack Nicklaus, and you were right in the thick of the majors during the prime of Jack Nicklaus's career. Talk about what it was like playing against Jack in the '60s and '70s.
3: Well, like I said, I uh, I first came over here. uh, I was picked again in the Australian team to play in the Eisenhower Cup matches at Marion in 1960, and uh, I, I got a an opportunity to come and go to Columbus and. Got to meet Jack there and, and, uh, we spent about four or five days practicing with Jack Grout and then drove down to St. Louis and we, be- we really become very good friends. And then, uh, in 1964, he came back to Australia with me and, uh, we played a lot of exhibitions there together. And, uh, and then we got to the Australian Open again and played at the Lakes Golf Club and, uh, cut a long story short I had to make par at the last hole of par 5 and I chose to lay it up short of the green about 70 yards and hit a pitch shot in there and I hit a beautiful pitch shot in there but it had too much spin and I spun it back off the front of the green and uh, pitched it up missed it from about 6 feet so he and I tied and then of course the next day he, he put a little 67 to my 69 so that was a Australian Open that got away from
1: me. You won 8 times on the PGA Tour over the 8-year period from 1964 to 1972. That was the heyday of the Big 3. Billy Casper was also a very dominant player during that time. He actually wrote a book titled The Big 3 and Me. Didn't you earn a seat at that table as well?
3: Well, I had a, you know, I had a nice career there during that
1: particular
3: part of my career on the on the tour and Uh, And at the same time, as you mentioned earlier, I had gotten into the architectural business with my partner, Robert Von Hage, and we started building golf courses around, basically around the world. And uh, I think that, you know, my wife always tells me, you know, you should never have got into that
0: architect so early. You should have stuck to playing golf. And maybe she was right, but uh, it was pretty hard to to do both things.
1: Speaking of Billy Casper... You bested him by a stroke to win the Carling World Open in 1966, which was played at Royal Birkdale. That had to have a feel of a major championship since where it was played at an outstanding course like Royal Birkdale. Talk about winning that tournament.
3: Yeah, that was, uh, that was a great, great event to win there. I, I love Birkdale. It's a great golf course. Uh, you know, it's the best uh, Philly Casper. You know, it's a bit of a feather in your hat, particularly when I had played with him the year before in the Western Open, the last round, last two rounds, because we were playing 36 holes on uh, on Saturday back in those days. and I played with Cass for the the last two rounds in Chicago, and I went home to my wife on the Saturday night, and I said, you know something? I'm not sure that I need to be in this business. I played with a guy the day that just... uh, I just can't believe how good a player he is, and I'm not sure I could ever beat him. Uh, so it was it was fun to win at uh, Royal Allen because uh, you know they were they were tournaments that you had to qualify for, sort of like a World Golf Championship in one respect. But uh, yeah, it was a it was a great victory. Thank you.
1: You had a lot of success playing in the state of Texas. Three of your tour wins came there. What was it about Texas golf that suited your game so well?
3: Oh, I don't know, but, uh, uh, probably, probably the way I grew up, uh, the little town that I grew up in had plenty of wind. Uh, it was a, you know, you had to learn how to flight your ball properly. And, uh, I think that, I think that probably was the reason why I played so well in Texas.
1: You played so well there. You were inducted into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame in 2014. What was it like when you got that call? And what was it like being recognized like that by the state of Texas?
3: Quite an honor, sir. Quite an honor to uh, to be in the Texas Golf Hall of Fame. Yes, they've uh, they're uh, it's a it's a great organization, and uh, as we all know now, they've just moved from San Antonio. Now they're part of the PGA. They're up in uh in Frisco in Texas, so uh, we're looking forward to when that all gets built and is up and running. So it'll be a lot of fun.
1: We're a few weeks away from this year's President's Cup matches. You teamed with David Graham to win the World Cup matches in 1970. You guys beat Roberto Di Vincenzo and Vicente Fernandez to capture that team title. I envision that being sort of a President's Cup of that time. What was it like teaming with David Graham and winning that event?
3: Yeah, that was a, that was a great victory for us. We were a couple of young guys back in those days. And, uh, of course Roberto was the, the king and to do it in his hometown with, uh, Sente was, uh, was nice to beat those guys. And I believe David ended up, I think David made a birdie on the last hole, ended up being the low stroke, uh, player too for the tournament. So it was a success all the way around.
1: You were one of the very best broadcasters in the game in the seventies and eighties. What made you give broadcasting a try?
3: Well, I missed the cut in, uh, at Westchester one year, and uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, the organization, the television group uh, at that time. But the guy that was the uh, producer for the for the golf tournament that weekend. Uh, got a message to me and said, Bruce, uh, as you missed the cut, would you like to spend, uh, you know, a couple of hours or an hour or so in the, in the booth on uh, Saturday and Sunday? And I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do? I might as well. So I did that. And then uh, at the end of that year, I got a call from from NBC to see if, uh, if I had an interest in, in going to work for them, which I did. So, uh, that was how I got started. I I did a little sit in for two days in Westchester, New York.
1: You've got your own podcast now for the good of the game with Mike Gonzalez. Talk about your show.
3: Oh, well, I tell you, Mike Gonzalez came up with that idea. And to be quite honest with you, we're, we've, we've had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I'll just run down a few stats for you. We've, we've interviewed. 50 of the World Golf Hall of Fame and major championship winners, 43 men and 7 women. Uh, the men have won, uh, uh, the men are, well, 31 in the World Golf Hall of Fame and the women 23. And we've interviewed 21 of those 54. And, uh, we've, we've interviewed 13 Masters winners who've won 43 times. 14 US Open winners that have won 22 Open. 12 open championship winners at a 121 open. So it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, the last couple of months, we, uh, we've, we've moved over to, to, uh, bring the ladies in, uh, major winners in World Golf Hall of Famers. We started off with Kathy Whitworth and Laura Davies. And, uh, we plan on, we plan on, uh, going as far as we can until, uh, till I get a call from, you know, who? <laughs> <laughs> at my age, at my age, it'll come a lot quicker than probably Mike. <laughs> but no, uh, Chris, it has been fun. It's been a lot of fun to be honest with you. I, you know, when Mike Gonzalez asked me, he said, "You know, Bruce, you you had a, such a wonderful relationship with, with all the guys you played against." I think we could make a make a good deal out of this uh, this podcasting. Well, and. For your information Chris I'm not sure if anybody's told you but we are we are negotiating with the World Golf Hall of Fame the PGA of America and the USGA to archive all of our uh, major championship and uh World Golf Hall of Fame golfers, both men and women so uh we're doing this for nothing we Mike and I agreed we won't make a penny out of it so uh if we can get if we can get these archived for the kids that come along thirty forty years from now and say, Oh, gee, who is this Jack Nicholson And you know, if they could press the button and listen to Jack Tilly's life story, we think that
1: would be worth it. Absolutely it will be. Bruce, one more before I let you go. And like I mentioned in your intro, you've designed over hundred and fifty golf courses worldwide. Talk about your design business.
3: Well, for, you know, for about 17 years there, I, I was with my partner and then he and I, he and I ended up splitting up in the mid nineties. And then I started to uh, do it on my own. Uh, I guess my, you know, it's hard to pick favorites of golf courses that you built, but, uh, the golf course that I built down in, uh, Buford, South Carolina called Secession is, is one of my favorites. And then I built a golf course at St. Andrews really in Scotland. And, uh, you know, that's not the easiest place in the world to build a golf course and get people to talk about it, but it's at the Fairmont Hotel. It's called Kiddick's Den and, uh, it's a, it's a fun golf course to play. It sits right on the, uh, right on the escarpment of the bay coming out of St. Andrews. So yeah, we, you know, we've, we've built a lot of golf courses in, around the world, Australia, most of them here in the United States, but it was a it was a rewarding, great number of years. To be quite honest with you, I had a lot of fun doing it.
1: Well, Bruce, how can our listeners stay up to date with all the great things you're doing? Whether that's following you online or over social media.
3: Yeah, well, uh, well, I have a family foundation called the Devlin Foundation,
1: and we hold a golf tournament
3: uh, in Buford for junior golf. We raise a raise a lot of money for junior golf. Uh, and uh it's uh it's the dot org and of course, you can always get to me through uh through
2: um, for the good of the game
1: Well Bruce, it was a huge thrill having you as part of the show tonight. I hope we get the privilege of having you come back and share more of your stories and insights with us and I hope that time is very soon
3: well, thank you chris. It's been an honor to be on your show we've uh I'm sorry it took us a little while to get to do it, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, let's do it again sometime. I'd appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
1: Me too. Thank you so much, Bruce, for being here tonight. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to us catching up again soon. Thanks, sir. Bye. That is the great Bruce Devlin, folks. Boy, it just doesn't get much better than that. I can't thank him enough for being generous with his time and, and being a part of the show tonight. The is the website for his foundation. And um, Buford, South Carolina. Boy, I can't wait to get over there and check out his golf course, Succession. That, I'm sure, is fantastic. But again, one of the greatest players in the history of the game, and then a great broadcaster on top of that. And it, I'm so many stories. I'm sure I could sit there and listen to him tell stories all night long. I hope I really get the privilege of having him back on the show again soon. And by soon, I mean very soon. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Tom Pertzer, Bob Estes, and Bruce Devlin for joining me tonight. Next week, scheduled to join me are former PGA Tour pro Neil Lancaster. will be making his Next on the T debut, as will former LPGA Major Champion Julie Inkster. Really looking forward to having Julie as part of the show. And our friend Chris Finn from Par for Success will be back. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you come back and be a part of it with us. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcasting site and app, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podcast.co, Audioboom, Player.fm, Podbean. Folks, if you have a favorite podcasting site or app, just type in Next on the T in the search bar. We're probably on that one, too. Please check out our website, NextOnTheT.net, to see what our upcoming guest schedule looks like. Plus, we've got links for you there for recent episodes and individual guest segments. So whether you've got 20 minutes or two hours, we've got great content on there available for you for free. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I know there are a lot of great golf podcasts out there for you to choose from. I am very thankful that you're making next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.